0: Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's
1: Stick to Wrestling podcast. Who the hell do you think you are?
0: I'll wait till the sun comes down and the Stick to Wrestling podcast starts. I want to thank Van Halen for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. Stick to wrestling. Give us 60 minutes. Perhaps indeed we'll give you a raw bone podcast. It is the only wicked good wrestling podcast out there. And it is the people's podcast. It is the major league of professional podcasts. Now, a couple of things, social media. You want to follow me on Twitter? Just put it in the name, John McAdam and in the search and my Twitter will come up. It's the guys fighting with chairs. You also want to be on this group's Facebook page. I know Facebook is kind of a pain in the neck. Uh, Grand Theft Auto 5 parodies it as Life Invader. My advice to you is if you don't want to be on Facebook, you don't want to tell people that you use it, lie to your family and friends and just sign up just for the Stick to Wrestling podcast. Follow the advice from your mentor. Lie to those who are closest to you. Now, before I bring on my guest, I want to tell you that this is a unique podcast, and not just in the wrestling business, but in all podcasts, because every decade since the 80s, I have gotten a bad case of dandruff, and I have one right now, and in 2011, 2012, even the DENEREX wouldn't fix it, so I got this stuff called Clear Shampoo for Men, and it worked. It got rid of it right away. Well... They don't make that anymore. They stop producing it. So I looked on the internet and it was suggested that I put coconut oil in my hair. So right now you're listening to a podcast where the host has coconut oil in his hair. And yet you're still listening. With that, I want to bring on one of my favorite guests, Jeff Bowdrin, host of the maintaining, keeping fake, kayfabe, maintaining kayfabe. What is it
1: again? Uh, I'm sorry, I was just waking up, John Uh, The whole, uh, you know, hair dandruff problem was starting to put me to sleep What was that? It's Breaking kayfabe. Breaking k Baldrin and Barry It's not just the people's uh, podcast It's everyone's podcast We play no favorites like you do here on this podcast Oh, I love favorites We do more than stick to wrestling I know, you guys talk about food a lot You, like, both of you know way more about food than I do Well, you know it's, uh, you know, I always said, I'd, I don't want to have a, a, a podcast where we just talk about wrestling. We want to talk about food, sports, uh, uh television, movies, music. We want to talk about life and that's what we do. We talk about everything.
0: We talk about coconut oil and dandruff here. Yeah, on apparently us, you like... do.
1: So <laughs> let's get this podcast kick kickstarted McAdam. Cause I got a question for you right away that all your listeners want to know what the fuck is the deal with you and Sean Goodwin. Go ahead. Tell us Nothing. <laughs> there is no. Well, no, you, you're posting this Sean stuff. Goodwin. You're reaching out. You're 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 looking for the hot tag from Sean Goodwin, and he is not tagging you, my man. He is combing his hair, the one that doesn't have dandruff, by the way. He is. Combing we don't know his that. Hair, and he's he's slicking it back, and he's got his back turned to you. And you're going make the tag, make make the tag. And they're putting the boots to you, and they're going get up, American boy. So anyway, <laughs> so there's no heat between you and Sean.
0: I, I I'm going to be completely honest with you well, and I the rest so. of the world. OK, when Sean left the podcast, OK, he was kind of pushed out and it was strictly a schedules thing. He couldn't do weekends and I could only reliable, reliably do weekends. You, you, you just yeah. And so Sean came on. He did the last show. There was, you know, there has never been a bad word between Sean Goodwin and I. I've known him for over 10 years via the Internet. And, you know, Sean kind of you know, did that last show and he, he said goodbye. He he did everything the correct way. And I thought there was no heat and the guy vanished on me. He, you know, stopped posting. He ghosted you. Yeah.
1: That's that's the exact word to use. Isn't that what most of your former girlfriends have done? They've ghosted you. Well, that's another story for another time. I'm not
0: going to. I I have many ghosting stories. I got introduced to ghosting as a junior in high school, but anyway, I mean, I just don't understand. Like, you know, I made it perfectly clear to Sean, I told him, look, you have not done anything wrong. I'm really happy with you as a host. It's just a scheduling thing. And, you know, you can't do weekends. I can only do weekends. And, yeah, like I said, the guy just, you know, we were in two or three different Facebook groups together, including the Six wrestling Facebook group. And the guy just, like, vanished. So I don't know if he's upset about something. I feel like he has no reason to be upset. But, you know, Sean, if you're listening, reach
1: out and we'll talk about it. Reach for that hot tag, Sean. <laughs> Don't just so, walk back to the dressing room like Peter exactly. idea. Yeah, and, and Sean's uh, John's getting color at this point. You know, he's on the <laughs> mat. They're putting the boots to him. So, okay, now, next question, before we kickstart the, uh, the Georgia portion uh, of our uh, podcast. I recently, upon the uh, unfortunate death of Eddie Van Halen, reached out and asked people for their top three guitarists of all time. Now, I know, knowing your musical taste, bizarre as they may be sometime you're gonna pick some guy from a uh, billy and the clusterfucks some band that you saw in nashua uh, back in the early 80s give me your top three guitarist of all time
0: my impeccable musical taste i mean eddie Van
1: <laughs> is a clear number one who oh okay gotcha <laughs> oh, <yo. laughs> no no no. I, I was i didn't hear you say it. you said eddie's number one who's number two and three uh, let me think. This this one is Sideswipe Me. We are not I, just sticking to wrestling this week,
0: folks. Damn it. Jeff has taken over the show.
1: It's I'm like thinking, Flaherty's here again.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking I'm going to go with number two. He was a, acknowledged as a, as a really good guitarist, and I just like his work. Johnny Ramone.
1: Okay. I oh. knew we were going punk with one of them. Okay, so number three.
0: Number three. Oh, man. Let me think. Uh, Prince?
1: Okay. That's I mean, choice. I've always, guitars, no, no question about it. Finally, before we get started, you're all, you guys to time- give me your top three. I did mine already. I, know, I said, I, I said, Eddie, uh, actually I said, Jimi Hendrix. Uh, is like 1.0 and Eddie's like 1.25. And then my number three is, uh, you know, Clapton, old slow amp. All right. I could see that. Yeah. I didn't go really controversial. You know, like one, one of the things I said, uh, in our group, uh, Breaking Cafe with Baudrin and Bale, uh and Barry available on Facebook by the way uh is that uh you know in our group nothing ticks off the people in our group or starts more shit stirring than uh, asking a musical question you know you you ask really uh, best, best drummer best 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 lead singer and there's always one guy you know that will not want to do your typical i mean even if you put a list of 100 Great guitarist on there. Okay. And if my co host, Barry Rose, if he put 100 and they were completely separate lists, I guarantee you there'd be somebody that go, Oh, yeah, I can't believe you forgot this guy. This guy that went on tour with Poison in '91 <laughs> and they worked the Asia tour uh, when they were over in Asia because CC Deville couldn't work that tour. Uh, he was with them only for two months, but that guy he should be on your You know, it's like that kind of thing. Let's see how obscure we can go for our guitar list. Now, give me your favorite Van Halen song of all time we also did that. Oh, uh, favorite Van Halen. song, uh, the Kings cover, which one is that? Uh, it really got me. Oh yes. Yes. Great song. Uh, I, of course, uh, one that's near and dear to my heart is dance the night away because dance the night away is the song that I had my first, uh, or my father daughter dance with my daughter at her wedding. We danced to Van Halen. So yeah, I had to be the cool dad. Uh, of you course. more a, a David Lee guy or a Sammy guy?
0: I am definitely a David Lee guy. I went to go see David Lee. Uh, in Worcester in 1986 where I got to see the solo tour and he cracked me up he's like hey you don't see me up here doing uh Sammy Hagar songs now do you
1: <laughs> okay so we uh finally ready to talk some Georgia wrestling because now um the folks are going, no we
0: can't flip. do that man we we have to acknowledge and by the time this podcast come out comes out it's going to be kind of dated news but Tracy Smothers passed away uh, a couple of Wild days Ice before Southern. we started recording recording this yeah
1: what, any memories of Tracy Smothers for you? Uh, you know, it, it's funny because, you know, you talk about Tracy as one of the wild Southern boys, a gimmick, by the way, that would not fly today. Yeah, unfortunately. Uh, and, uh, you know, also uh, his run with Tommy Rich and ECW, as, uh, you know, with Guido as part of the, uh, the full-blooded Italians where he would sit there and do the little uh, thing with his chin like uh, Corleone would do. So, uh, yeah, uh, you know, uh, a guy that was... Uh, they all accounts a really good dressing room guy, a guy that was a uh, very solid, a guy that young guys could go to and ask uh advice, you know, uh, on their, uh their matches or, or their careers or whatever. And they could get, you know, he would give them solid input back. Um, a guy that was, you know, he was never a guy that you sit there and went, you know, oh this guy is uh he needs to, he needs to do something. Uh, he needs to take another step. When I saw this guy in the UWF in 1986, he was already a solid worker. He just was underneath. Yeah. And then, you know, when he went to the different, like Southeastern and, and, uh, and continental and stuff like that, he got more of a push and he was very good friends with Steve Armstrong. And then they started the, the, uh, apparently, uh, I read, I read today, uh, at the time of this recording that, uh, he and Steve, uh, even though their tag team had been long since broken up, had remained friends, which that's, that's cool to hear, you know, cause yeah. I hadn't, I hadn't heard anything that Steve, you know, any comments from Steve Armstrong. So I didn't know whether or not there had been some heat between them or, you know, maybe that was the reason Steve hadn't commented. So, But it was very nice to hear. A very solid worker. I don't know that he was ever great on the mic. I did like him. I loved his tag team in Smoky Mountain with Tony Anthony. That was really good stuff. You know, the thugs.
0: Yeah, uh, I absolutely loved him in Smoky Mountain wrestling. I thought it was the perfect place for him. Um, And I went out to Smoky Mountain for Fan Week in 1994 and we had this luncheon at Hooters. It was like a baby-faced luncheon.
1: Well, of course, and, where else would you go but Hooters? Go ahead. Right. And
0: Ricky Morton could not have been more distant and more uncomfortable, which you know is, is fine because I didn't fly out there to hang out with Ricky Morton. I, I, I more you know to hang out with my friends from all over the place, and we're sitting there having lunch, and Tracy Smothers just walks right up to us and "Hey guys, how you doing? you know very friendly, and he was very impressed that I flew all the way from Boston to to Knoxville to go on a 10 day oh, it was endless. Wrestling trip. I mean, by the by, the end I was exhausted. I never wanted to see a wrestling match again. But Tracy, you know, he went out of his way to be nice to us, and you know, it's just the little things count. You know, that's what I remember about Tracy Smothers. That's my my memory of him. That he went out of his way to say hello to a bunch of marks at the at the table at Hooters.
1: So, do you remember? I'm, I'm guessing this is you know, give or take a year or two, mid 90s. How much did you pay for that trip? You remember?
0: Oh man, uh. (laughs) let me see the the plane was not that expensive it was like 350 and i want to say the trip itself was like 300 so i'm guessing and then you got to buy food and stuff so i'm guessing it turned out to be like 750 800 bucks okay that's not bad i mean it was 10 days
1: yeah the other thing i remember about tracy is his program with brian lee where he would do he would get on the interviews and he'd go let me tell you about Prime time, bri- prim, prima donna, Brian Lee. That's what they would call I, just, I always loved the when he would call Brian Lee prima donna, Brian Lee. Yeah,
0: I I miss Smoky Mountain wrestling. That was a very very small or very not very long, but a great period in wrestling for me. Yeah. So you a anyway. real
1: window into Southern wrestling.
0: You know, yeah, about, about five years. It was a lot of fun. But anyway, Jeff, I want to ask you. We're going to talk. We've been talking territories the past few weeks. And we're going to move to Georgia, where this is the first time where I'm having a guest that didn't grow up in that area. Jeff grew up watching Florida wrestling, but you got Georgia wrestling on cable. When did you start watching it?
1: Oh, let me see. I wish I could tell you that I started watching it as soon as I got cable in June of 1979, but I did not. Uh, I don't know if I didn't discover it or what, but the first thing I remember is uh, the Freebirds coming to, uh, to Georgia. And that's, uh, you know, that was a real big deal. And, of course, I've had, you know, the benefit of being able to go back through YouTube and, and see some of the Heenan stuff and and all that, and that's great. Yeah. But, uh, no, I, I would say, like, when the Freebirds uh, first showed up and were feuding with uh, DiBiase, and they were bringing JYN to team with, uh, with DiBiase, and also, oh, my God, uh, Plowboy Frazier. Mm. And uh, I think at that time, from what I've heard, not 100% on this, but I'm pretty sure that Robert Fuller was the booker in at Atlanta at that point. He was. Yeah. And
0: the story I heard was that Ted DiBiase was supposed to get a run with the NWA title, and they are like, you know, hey, put Ted DiBiase on this national cable show, make him look good, build him up. And like I said, it's just the story I heard that Dusty got into Robert Fuller's head and just told him, you know, yeah, don't make him shine like they him to make him shine.
1: And who got that title run, Jeff? Um, well, you know, shockingly dusty did, I, I, I know you're stunned to hear that. So, you know, it, one of the things that really surprised me about that is because I thought from the point of view of the television, uh, the debiase for, you know, the course, the five pile drivers on the cement and debiase in the hospital, and all that kind of stuff. And those free birds, the promos were great. Uh, and all that was, was really good stuff. But I remember hearing later on that at the arenas, I don't know about the TV ratings, but at the arenas it was they they were down while while Fuller was the booker. I'm not positive about that, but that's what I had heard.
0: No, I I and we'll talk about this. I mean I heard that Georgia wrestling was going through a difficult period on and off in the early eighties and then in eighty three attendance fell off a cliff.
1: Well and there's a there's reasons that are alleged for that alleged. And oh, we'll, tell me we'll, about these. And we'll discuss that. Uh yeah, no, the the, the story goes and this is uh, just the story that I've heard. Uh, nothing uh, uh 100% factual, just I had heard that uh Jim Barnett, who was the uh, the executive that was basically and eh, sort of like he was the executive and and Ole was the guy uh that was, he was like the general manager and only was the manager in the dugout, if you will. Right. Oli found out that Jim was uh, taking advantage, shall we say, of his uh, expense account, perhaps uh, uh, overspending on certain items. Uh, Jim was known to be a very flamboyant. I don't mean that because he was gay. I just mean that he had very expensive habits uh, with art and stuff like that. He was in a lot of uh, social circles in uh, the Atlanta area. He was very well known. And uh, he had a, a habit of uh, overspending, shall we say. Mm. And uh, Oli found out about it. Forced Barnett out, you know, by saying, uh, "If you don't quit, I'm going to reveal this to the uh, the corporate types with, um, you know, the people that own stock in the company, and I'm also going to report it to the people at TBS." And so Barnett kind of bowed out. Uh, I don't know if it was gracefully or not. And uh, I don't know if that's when Barnett went up to the WWF for the first time or not. But anyway, at that point, Ole, uh began having problem getting his talent in, and that's when you started seeing the guys like Pez Watley and Joe Lightfoot takeover on, uh, TBS. And that's when, uh, things really started hitting this. Cause you know, people like to think about the fact that the road warriors were the glory days of Georgia wrestling. The the road warriors were, were really put together at the very last minute. Uh, you know, they, they had brought Joe Laurinaitis in, uh, to be the road warrior. And then, uh, after Matt Bourne had a little scrape with the law, uh, his team with Arn Anderson was kind of dissolved, uh, overnight and they, uh, made a call. Uh, up to Eddie Sharkey and got Mike Hegstrand to come in and uh, the road warriors were born, but uh, it was born out of desperation. They got over sort of like in spite of themselves and it became very hot. But the promoter, uh, the promotion, other than that, there was a lot of, you know, Hey, you know, people talk about Buzz Sawyer against the road warriors. That's believable. Brett Sawyer against the road warriors. Not so much. You see, I thought they did an interesting
0: job with Brett because they spent all of 1983 building him up and they put the national title on him. And I kind of bought it, but now you're putting, like you said, now you're putting him up against these two giant roid heads. And is it believable? I don't know. I mean, I rolled with it the same way I rolled with like Ricky
1: Morton being competitive against Steve Dr. Death Williams. Yeah, you know, a lot of it depends on, what kind of performer the the guy is, or what kind of wrestler the guy is, and I don't think that that Brett Wayne Sawyer was that good. I, I think Buzz, a lot of demons, a lot of personal problems, but when the bell rang, Buzz was an amazing performer, and he, you know, he had an awesome feud in '85 with Hacksaw Jim Duggan, despite the fact that Jim Duggan probably was uh, almost a foot taller than him. You know, they had a great program in Mid South because Buzz was believable as the maniac, but I, I don't know that. That Brett uh, and I'm not poo-pooing Brett and saying he was a horrible wrestler. He wasn't. Just physically speaking, there wasn't anything that really made you believe. Uh, in the way uh, to use your uh, example, that you know Ricky Morton at least had that fire that made people believe that he could compete against somebody the size of Dr. Death, Steve Williams. Yeah,
0: I mean you know when you look back at it, it felt like they spent most or all of 1983 building up to a world where you know brett sawyer wins the national title and then it's revealed that buzz is his brother and they're going to be the two main superstars on the georgia roster but they're doing this at the same time where the wwf's about to bring in hulk hogan okay or or the same time they did bring in hulk hogan and you've got hulk as the number one baby face on one side and brett and buzz sawyer as kind of the co baby top baby faces on the other it didn't look good
1: well, you know, you had uh, Tommy Rich had started to uh, undergo a physical transformation that was not good, uh, <laughs> yeah. that uh, he was no longer the proverbial skinny white meat baby face. He was now the kind of chubby bordering on fat white meat baby face. And uh, although he still had all the Tommy Rich, you know, moves and, and mannerisms and God knows he bled uh, willingly. He wasn't that, that young kid that the girls went crazy for. He had now sort of, morphed into a, a pretty close to a 30 year old, uh, guy that, uh, wasn't, uh, you know, it, it would have been nice if Brett Wayne Sawyer had the looks to, to attract the girls. Uh, Jerry Jarrett used a different word for it, but, uh, you know, uh yeah, get, get, get the girls to come into the arena and, uh, you know, the skirt chasers and stuff like that. But, you know, buzz wasn't that guy certainly. And, uh, I don't think, I mean, no offense. I don't think Brett, Brett Wayne Sawyer had, had that look, you know? No, didn't he was, me as that.
0: He was no Kerry Von Eric, that's for sure. <laughs> I don't even know if he was Mike, but you know, <laughs> good one. So you started getting it uh, summer of nineteen seventy nine, you
1: said, right? That's when I first got cable. I really didn't start getting into it. So uh, wouldn't the Freebirds get there? In like early eighty, because that's when they finished their run in mid South. I think it was around. That's uh, I got the. Time. I was like fall of eighty. Okay. So, uh, you know, maybe I completely missed the boat until then. I mean, you know, it was like one of these things I would turn on every once in a while because I was really just a, a CWF guy. And by the way, just to clarify for people out there, Florida wrestling is not FCW. I saw someone post that in one of your groups recently. It was CWF. I'm very picky about that. Uh, okay. But, um, yeah, so I, I, mainly was, uh, just attracted and, you know, I, I don't know about you. I have stated this before, maybe even on this show when I've made other appearances, my wrestling fandom went through ebbs and flows. I had discovered wrestling through my grandmother in the early part of the 1970s. She took me to my first matches, and uh, I, I followed it just like religiously for about four or five years. And then I kind of, I think when I got into high school, I kind of started dropping off it. And the really disappointing aspect of that is, as I was in high school in Fort Lauderdale, and that's when you know, like uh, right after Bobby Shane died, I think I kind of stopped watching it for a while. And that's when Harley Race got brought in as a booker. And if you look at some of the cards on the uh, cwf uh, archives uh, facebook group that barry rose runs uh, some of the stuff that they were doing then when harley races the booker oh my god those cards are so loaded with talent it's just unbelievable but i got back into florida wrestling i want to say uh we had moved away it's interesting we moved away to st louis at the time st louis of course sam muchnick was uh incredibly hot promotion i think in two years that i lived outside of st louis i think i watched the st louis wrestling program once or twice i just oh, never man. got into it yeah i, I who knows why and then when I moved back to Florida, that is when, um, when I started getting, they did the last tangle in Tampa at some point. And then, uh, the other thing I remember is Don Morocco coming in as the magnificent M and, uh, Paul Jones doing the Mr. Florida gimmick. And I started, I kind of started getting back into it for a little while. Then I, I took a little slide out of it and then David Von Erich showed up in, uh, in Florida. And I, I pretty much was hooked on Florida until the dying days of the promotion.
0: Wow. Okay. So that explains it because when I first got my cable box, February, 1980, every half an hour, every day, I would go through every channel to see if wrestling yeah, was right. on. Let's see if I can pick up the Lucha Libre channel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, we got this, this weird stuff from, from Montreal
1: yeah.
0: on one, on one of the French channels. And it wasn't like the main promotion. It was like some bizarre minor league promotion. But then we got, eventually we got the main promotion, like 85, 86.
1: Did you read the Andre book yet? I have not. Oh my, it's, it's so good. Like you, you talk about, you know, I mentioned Florida had great talent and, you know, we're talking about Georgia here. Georgia, you know, at different times had some tremendous talents. God, if you ever look at a Georgia card in the seventies, they were loaded. But because there was a, uh, a war between two different groups, the, the groups that the Rougeos had and the groups that the, the Vachon brothers had. We're basically running. Uh, oh, my God. The, the cards in Montreal for a period of time were just stacked as they were competing against. It was like Grand Prix wrestling versus uh, I don't remember what the other promotion was called. But just, uh, yeah, tremendous, tremendous amount of talent going through Montreal at that time. And uh, by the way, the Andre book is fantastic once you get a ch- chance to read it.
0: Well, definitely. I, I, I'm always behind in my reading. And one thing I know we're talking about Georgia, I deeply regret not taking in a just one. Montreal show I mean it's four hours Up the road I go there anyway There's plenty of other stuff to do like That was a major regret I have
1: Yeah I never uh you know Talk my one of the you talk About arenas that I wish I could have seen matches In the uh, the city auditorium In Atlanta is when I really I, I Wish uh you know I always felt like when they moved Into the Omni You know so much was different because The uh and maybe they had outgrown the city Auditorium that could be a very you know Viable excuse but the Omni's rent was so much more. So they had to have more people in there to justify the, the cost of the rent. And that was another problem they ran into eventually, was that the rent in the Omni was so high.
0: Okay, one big problem they had is that the Atlanta City Auditorium closed, which supposedly was perfect as far as capacity goes for what you know the Georgia promotion was drawing. And now you're in the Omni, which hosts the Atlanta Hawks, so it's a major arena, and it was just too big. For the promotion. And from what I understand, that was a, a major problem. Like everyone knew that there would always be good seats available, you know, so you could walk up and not have to buy them in advance.
1: Sure. And, you know, when the city auditorium was still open and running, they could run their usual weekly, fr- I believe it was Friday nights mm-hmm. uh, in Atlanta. And then when they had a special car, you know, if they had Andre or they had the world champion coming in, they could move it to the uh, Omni and sell it as a big event and stuff like that and still maintain their local, you know, base with their, uh, you know, their, their four or five, 6,000 people. I don't know what the uh, the city auditorium drew, but, uh, you know, that they were getting every single week that wouldn't show up at the Omni and feel sort of, you know, in a way kind of disenfranchised as, you know, like, hey, uh, these people that don't come to wrestling every week the way, like I do that are getting better seats than I am because the seats are more expensive. You know, it's one of those kind of things.
0: Oh, yeah. And, you know, when you're running the Omni once every three or four months for a special event, it feels like a special event. And, you know, by the time the auditorium closed, they were running the Omni every two or three weeks. So obviously, no, it's not that special anymore. Yeah. And by the way, I just think uh, for the purpose
1: of the uh, people that are listening, we should decide whether or not we're going to call it the Omni or like Freddie Miller, the Omni. The
0: Omni. I never forget that. (laughs) So Georgia wrestling, Jeff, you started watching, more or less started
1: watching in 1980. Who were your personal favorites? Well, I, you know, I want to say, uh, because I was kind of still a mark, uh, even though DiBiase was my favorite by far. But that was when I really, I don't, I don't really know that I liked a, a lot of heels in Florida when I was younger. Uh, I was more strictly a babyface guy. But that is when I began to really appreciate the Freebirds as the heels. And uh, it's just amazing to think that here I was sitting there watching the Freebirds on TV and I was the same age as Terry Gordy. You know, it's just it boggles the mind to think that a guy that was first of all, when he was in Mid-South main eventing and, you know, uh, in cards that were at the he was 18 years old. Then he comes to Atlanta and he's headlining, you know, with, with Michael Hayes, a guy that's like two or three years older than him. They're headlining cards at the Omni in Atlanta. And he was like 19. He's 19 years old. You know, so all those men, you go, you go down a rabbit hole in world class in Dallas. And Terry Gordy was 22. You know, I mean, it's crazy to think that. I I will never
0: get over that feud. It was the Von Erics against Hayes and Gordy. Buddy Roberts is the outlier. But five of those six guys are in their early to mid
1: 20s. It was insane. Yeah, no, it it really was. And, uh, you know. But uh, getting back to Georgia, DiBiase was definitely my favorite. Uh, I liked him. You know, Tommy Rich, I liked, but I was never huge into Tommy Rich. It was like, you know, oh, here's Tommy Rich. You know, and of course, Bob Armstrong when he would show up, I never really cared for him as "quote unquote" a worker, but I loved his promos. You know, Jackass can't run with a racehorse. You know, Uh, know, I'll I'll step on him like a like a duck on a June bug, and he always had these great little sayings, you know, colloquialisms. That, uh, always cracked me up.
0: Now, let me ask you this. You said you were a big fan of Ted DiBiase. This is when he was a regular part of the promotion in 1981. What was your reaction when he
1: returned fall 1983 as a heel? Well, he was a heel had put on a bit of weight. I, I mm-hmm. think, uh, he had, I want to say at least 25 plus. And, uh, you know, I believe I had read somewhere, That when he returned and he had put on the extra weight that Ted was having uh, marital issues and uh, had said that uh, or was quoted as saying that he had been drinking quite a bit. And that's why he put on all that weight. I had heard that as well from a very credible source. And, and, you know, the thing is, is because I liked him so much as a baby face, it really disappointed me. You know, again, I'm still a Mark and I'm like, oh, man, DBS is a heel or, or a bad guy that just like completely sucks but he was of course so much better as a heel than he ever was as a babyface. You know, I mean he was a solid uh you know guy. He he had he had charisma. I don't know as a babyface world champion if he would have ever cut the mustard as a heel world champion, I think he would have been fantastic. I think he was
0: one of those guys that that and I think what they wanted was he could have been a tweener and I think he would have sure. worked no, really yeah, he, well in that
1: role. Yeah, no, he definitely could have done that. And, uh, I actually had a chance. I had dinner with Ted one night and we talked about it and he, he told us about, uh, he heard the story about one of the reasons why Ted suspects he never got to run with the title. Did you ever hear the, the story about the conversation you had with Muchnick that got back to Barnett? Oh no, I don't know about this. Well, so supposedly he had gone up to work at St. Louis show and, you know, much is still the president of the NWA and, At this point, it's Flair, Dusty, or DiBiase. One of those three guys is supposedly going to get to run with the belt. And, uh, you know, after Harley. And so Muchnick goes up to Ted and he says, uh, so, Teddy, how's things going in uh, Atlanta? And apparently Ted looked at him and goes, well, Sam, I got to be honest with you, it's a real clusterfuck down there. (laughs) And he goes, you know, he goes, "Uh, the money's not doing good. And uh, And, and he kind of does a little venting to Sam. Well, Sam then proceeded to call Jim Barnett. Told told Jim Barnett what Ted had said, and suddenly Ted's chances at the NWA uh, championship uh, got quite a bit, uh, you know, smaller than they had before. And and you know, I, I think Ted believed that that whole situation played a part in him not ever getting a run with the NWA belt. Which you know, back then when the NWA belt meant something, uh, I think Ted would have been a really good world champion. Now, you know, let me let me throw something at you here, uh, just to to speculate here. What do you think? would have happened if Ric Flair had been involved in that plane crash and was never able to resume his career. Do you think DiBiase was, the, or would it have been the charisma of Dusty that would have gotten him uh, the, the belt, or I think DiBiase would have gotten that run after Harley Race?
0: Okay, it had Ric Flair not recovered from that plane crash, I'm going to take take you down a road that you didn't think was coming. I always thought that Ric Flair, I think Ric Flair is the greatest wrestler of all time. I think Greg Valentine was a great wrestler. And Ric Flair and Greg Valentine were so similar that Rick kind of got, in my opinion, in Greg's way a little bit. With Rick out of the way, I think Greg Valentine might have been a
1: viable NWA champion. I think Greg Valentine would have been a. Hmm. I think if you had made him without Ric Flair in the picture at all, mm-hmm. no, no shadow of flair. I think Valentine could have been a, maybe a shorter term champion, you know, okay. like, like the the run that say dusty had that sort of run. I would have had no problem with Greg Valentine getting a run with the belt for that period of time. I don't think Greg Valentine was a long-term uh, was, was good enough. And, you know, people could disagree with me, but you know, he, and you know, Greg Valentine for his, as good as he was in the ring and as solid as he was in the ring, when the uh, the proverbial end came for for Greg, whew, man, he really, some guys start doing a slow fade where you just start noticing, oh, they're not as good as they were two years ago. Greg, when that end came, he just fell right off a cliff. Oh, yeah, yeah, I saw
0: that as well. But I mean, reasonable minds can disagree. But I mean, I thought Greg Valentine, even with Flair in the mix, I thought he could have been a good NWA champion. I thought he was going to be WWF champion, but with flair around like Valentine kind of came across as Rick jr. Even when they turned Rick and feuded him with Greg.
1: Yeah. know, yeah, You know, the, the, the stuff, stuff uh, I'm sure you've seen it. It's out there where Valentine comes out with the girls and, and flares the babyface now. And he's wearing like a suit or like a tuxedo or something tux, like that. Yeah. Yeah. That that's, that's great stuff. You know, where they're playing off one another and stuff. You know, there's, there's guys that you could look at that were the potential. I, I don't really know that there's anybody other than maybe DiBiase that you can say, oh, they completely missed that boat The boat with that guy in terms of someone being a long-term NWA champion, okay? But short-termers, there there's guys out there that I can look and see and say, you're like Wahoo. Wahoo, I would have had no problem being a short-term NWA champion because he certainly had the skills to do it. Who else can I think of? Uh, you know, somebody that I really think was uh, speaking of Georgia that was super over that I was really into as a babyface at the time, an ass-kicking babyface was Paul Orndorff, and I, I think Paul, by the end of his run in Georgia before he made the 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 trip up up north, I, I wouldn't have had a problem with them putting on the the belt on Orndorff. Uh, he's very t- intense, and uh, another guy that really found his stride when he went up there and, and became a heel. And, uh, geez, who can forget, uh, it was on, uh, I watched it, uh, on YouTube today or within the past couple of days, you know, I saw a clip of it where he's doing the, uh, the workout with the five people off the street and the one girl comes up and touches him on the shoulder. Don't ever touch Mr. Wonderful. You never want to touch Mr. Wonderful. And, uh, that, and then when he turns on Hogan and, you know, and Jesse's laughing and Vince is like, you knew it all along, Jesse, you knew it all along. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I loved Orndorff. I thought he was great. And, uh, you know. Just a a super super wrestler.
0: Oh, I mean, I remember seeing Orndorf in Georgia like early nineteen eighty-two. I had seen a little bit of him in Knoxville and Mid South before that. When we got those shows on cable, and I, I just remember he quickly won the national championship and they put him in a program with Flair. And I looked at this guy who you know I knew who he was. He was a big deal in Mid South. He was a North American champion. He'd been NWA tag team champion, and I just saw him on Georgia being like, okay, I can see this guy as the NWA world's heavyweight champion. I remember my girlfriend getting all clammy over him, too. And by the way, that that skit he did in the WWF when he was in the gym training those five average people. Listeners seek that out because it is one of the funniest and most heelish things ever because Orndorff, you could almost tell he meant every word he was saying yeah, to him. Yeah. You're never going to have a body like Mr. Wonderful, no matter what you do. <laughs> I, I don't know why I'm wasting my time here. I don't know <laughs> yeah. why I'm wasting my time on you.
1: He was phenomenal. Oh yeah. He was very good. You know, it's funny because I actually went and saw flair in West Palm beach. with have a match with Butch Reed and Butch Reed, you know, the proverbial coming within an inch of winning the world championship. And of course, you know, the crowd, Rushes over his flares, doing the uh, the bloody limp back to the dressing room, you know? Yeah. And I remember hearing a guy in the crowd, this is one of these things, 38 years later, I still remember it. The guy goes, Paul Orndorff is going to kick your ass. Because, you know, <laughs> people thinking, well, geez, if you can barely beat Butch reed Paul Orndorff's going to have your lunch. And, you know, it, they had done a great job of promoting him as the babyface. And who could have seen that this guy would have been such a great heel and, and so much. I mean, honestly, as much as I like Paul Orner, as a baby face. He was so much better as a heel. You oh, I agree. Yeah. So now
0: we're moving to unhappier times. Black Saturday, July 14th,
1: 1984. Jeff, share your memories of Black I, Saturday. I got to be honest with you. I think by that point, I'd become so disappointed with Georgia that I had stopped watching. Oh, wow. I might have got a phone call from somebody saying, hey, why is Vince on Georgia? You know, like one of those kind of things. But I don't remember, it's not like I was sitting there watching it and I, you know, put a stamp on the date and on the calendar and said, this is something I got to remember the rest of my life. But I remember when they came on and uh, they started doing the show in the morning with Oli and Gordon and Jimmy Hart and the New York Assassins and all those guys and, and Thunderbolt was back and just going, oh man, this is like such a step down for the promotion. And, uh, you know, and Oli was only doing commentary. He wasn't even wrestling anymore. That was not good stuff, and then uh, they end up. Uh, and then, of course, Mid South has. Well, it was like a month where the Mid South took over for six weeks. Yeah, and uh, and then of course Crockett ends up getting it, and yeah, that's like one of the great what ifs. You know, what if Turner had given Bill Watts the slot permanently, you know, quote unquote permanently, as long as that goes, and uh, and had not given it to to Crockett and Dusty, what would Bill Watts had done with it when you know Bill Watts was still really involved in his promotion and had his fingerprints all the promotion I, I think that would have been some really interesting speculation as to what bill watts could have done you know it's funny because I, I read something again uh, i don't know if this on facebook or twitter or somebody said oh well, well bill watts uh, he saw the crowd in uh, in this the silver dome and he quit he basically folded his tents in, and i'm sitting there thinking bill watts never quit at anything i don't think if people don't think Bill Watson have an ego, they should listen to some of his comments. Oh, yeah. You know, and so I just I, I find it hard to believe that. Uh, and first of all, I think the sale, you know, I know it's close, but I think the sale had been going on before that. So this wasn't like, oh, uh, wow, uh, this guy's drawing 90,000 people in this in the Silverdome. So now I need to uh, call up Jim Crockett and, and quickly sell my promotion. I think there were other things going on at the time. There was uh, a terrible oil crisis that affected the Miss you know, the, the mid South and the Southwest and stuff. And then of course they started doing the, stu- the, the, stupid expansion, you know, let, let's move our offices to Dallas or, or let's start running Dallas and, and let's start doing uh, then they do it. They did a show up in Massachusetts, didn't they? No, I'm sure as, as I know they did. not
0: oh, Okay. Well, I, think no, I the mean, closest I know this thing I to hear was, uh, I don't think they even came remotely close to here. I'm okay. thinking.
1: <laughs> well, I know they did like a national tour. I didn't know how far out North they went, but the, you know, I think they went out to LA and uh, you know, it's funny. I, I did a, uh, I had a phone call with a friend of mine who grew up uh, basically his whole life was spent in the mid South area and uh, a guy that he used to do some, uh, some wrestling on the independent level and stuff like that. And I heard a story and uh, he had an interesting reaction. Someone was saying that, uh, you know, we, we talked about the city auditorium and the Omni and the difference in the potential audience that you'd have. And this was when the UWF was still alive, but was kind of starting to take in water and they had gone to a, a show. Let's just for the sake of argument, say it was like Jackson, Mississippi. Okay. And Jackson, Mississippi, let's just say for the sake of argument, the building held 6,000 people. And the next night they went to a a place where it was like only a 2000 seat uh, arena and they drew a good crowd. And then the next night they went to new Orleans to, uh, you know, like maybe the Superdome and maybe the Superdome, let's say they drew the exact same crowd as they drew in Jackson. Okay. Mm -hmm. And Michael Hayes, I believe was quoted as saying, you know, it's good that we're able to go to these big arenas. And the point my friend made was, why are you happy going to a big arena that you're basically going to be in a shell because there's going to be, you know, 7,000 people, and the Superdome is different than 7,000 people in the Coliseum in Jackson, Mississippi. Oh, you know yeah. what I mean? Uh, because of the atmosphere, the way the crowd is hot, the, the 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 ability to connect with the fans that are closer to you than going, you know, let me tell you something. You know, I, I went to a show at the Superdome. I went to the first Jim Crockett tag team tournament at the Superdome. And there was like a couple thousand people there. And it was just like, wow, this is like supposed to be such a great tag team tournament. And there's like nobody here. Yeah, Why aren't these people in New Orleans coming to this tournament? And when I told my friend that story, he said, "You know what? If that's the way the the guys feel that they want to be in these quote unquote big arenas, uh, you know that that kind of thing, or the the places where like the NBA teams were, then they're going to fail because if they if they can't be happy having a sold out crowd and a smaller venue, but like you know more people, say more people spending more money on merchandise on on, on whatever, then." Going into the Superdome and, hey, this is a big Major arena, the, the Saints play here or, or There's a big stadium But the crowd is complete crap, but it's okay Because we're in a big stadium, you know, that he said They're going to fail if they have that kind of Mindset, and, you know, of course, inevitably They did. Yeah, I am one of Those people who believe
0: the Bill Watt story that when he saw WrestleMania, he said, that's it I'm packing it up. It wasn't the One factor that You know, led him to sell. He had a rough Late '86, early '87, but I, I personally believe that was the straw that broke the camel's back. And Bill, you know, when he was growing up, I mean, you know, he went to school at Oklahoma. He wasn't a wrestling fan, according to Watts himself. And then he went out with Wahoo McDaniel, and Wahoo cashed a check for like I don't know, seven hundred bucks. And he's like, "Where would you get that?" He's like, "Oh, I'm a wrestler." He's like, "Is that what you get for in a week?" And I was like, "No, that's what I got in a night." And Watts is like, "Well, whatever that is, get me in." <laughs> and you know, he. Watts being Watts, he became a big time wrestler. He saw the opportunity in promoting. And when it when it went bad on him, he just said, ah, screw it. I'm
1: walking away from
0: this. I don't care Well,
1: you, you know, one of the things uh, in a way, the whole late 86, early 87 was sort of a perfect storm for the demise yes. of the promotion, you know, because you had the economy and their main towns was really taking a hit. Uh, New Orleans. No matter how many guys Bill Watts tried to throw up as the next black superstar after J.Y. left, nobody replaced J.Y. No. Um, you know, it's funny because my, the friend I was just referring to said the people hated Butch Reed so much when he was seen with J.Y. that even after J.Y. left and they turned Butch Reed, the people still, did, still didn't trust Butch Reed. And that's why they never really fully embraced him as the new lead baby face. I mean, uh, that's crazy. Let me throw this in. That's crazy because I see, but- or
0: I look back and I see Butch Reed not as a replacement for the junkyard dog,
1: but as a possible upgrade from the junkyard dog. I mean, yeah, Reed was no, a stud. Know. Oh yeah, no, he was, he was a better athlete, a uh, better wrestler than J Y. Uh, and, uh, I'm not poo pooing J Y, incredible no, neither am I. and uh, incredible fan favorite. And almost to the point where I think, you know, the, the story is, is that when J Y lost to Mr. Wrestling too, uh, you know, that, that the fans in new Orleans all of a sudden realized that J Y was fake. You know, that, that you know, well, wait a minute, J- the junkyard dog lost to that old man, Mr. Wrestling, too. And the wrestling <laughs> yeah. can't be real. And I don't think New Orleans ever recovered, like in the territorial days. Obviously, they held WrestleMania there a couple years ago. But um, in the territorial days, I mean, it killed New Orleans dead. I because heard even that. When, when JY came back for a, a card in New Orleans, and it was a card with Hogan on it. And I remember they drew like 2,400 people there with JY and Hogan on the card. You know, right after he left to go to Vince, and anyway, we're starting to talk about uh, mid South instead of Georgia. That's okay. Uh, you, know, um, you know, Bill Watts. Speaking of Bill Watts, uh, of course, was a, a legendary booker in Georgia after the uh, the war with Ann 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 Gunkel. Ann Gunkel. You know, when they had the war with uh, All South Wrestling and Ann Gunkel, Bill Watts was the guy they brought in to book the territory to to bring it back. And uh, he was he was well known as a tremendous booker, and uh, you know, he booked Florida. Booked uh, Georgia, of course, uh, booked uh, Oklahoma for Leroy McGurk. Yeah, so what's the next Georgia question? Well, I mean, just
0: a quick observation. If I am a wrestler, part of that Georgia war of 1974, I'm working for Ann Gunkel, man. If you haven't seen a picture
1: of her, definitely Google one. She's a, she is unreal. Well, you know you know what's funny is I uh, had the chance to have dinner with Dutch Mantel. And one of the things is, you know, you're getting ready to have dinner with them, and you're doing a little background on Dutch. You sit there and you start realizing all the things that Dutch Mantell. Remember the movie Zelig with Woody Allen, where he was this guy that was present in all these different famous events in history? And that's what that's what Dutch Mantel. Dutch Mantell was still wrestling as Wayne Cowan in Atlanta, and he, he went with Ann Gunkel. So he was there for the wrestling war. Dutch Mantell was there when Bruiser Brody got murdered, for God's sake. He was there that night, you know. He was just this guy that was part of all this different stuff that, you know, he was, he was there for the, the Jarrett split, you know, he wow. was just one of these guys that just happened to be around when all these big events in wrestling history
0: happened. Uh, Dutch was always one of my favorites. I've, I've told the story on the show before he was wrestling a show in Lowell, Massachusetts, which is like 15 minutes down the road from me. And after the show, like everyone was hanging around and you remember the old WCW announcer, Chris Cruz. Oh yes. <laughs> I, I, I was friends with Cruz and try to I'm reach like, out to Cruz on Twitter. You'll get a nice response. That's <laughs> okay. I, I will try that. I'm like, Hey, introduce me to Dutch Mantell, and Apparently Chris doesn't, didn't understand that. You know, you're supposed to like kind of give him the, yeah, he's okay. You can talk to him. He's just like, Hey, you know, Dutch. Let me introduce you to my friend, John McAdam. And Dutch like, didn't want to talk to me. I was yeah. like, dude, I would die to touch, talk to Dutch Mantell, But anyway, Another reason why you should want to join the Facebook group if you are a listener to the Stick to Wrestling podcast is usually before the show uh, is recorded, we take some questions from some of the people in the group.
1: The esteemed members of the group.
0: Exactly. It's like the gold club. Ron Gamble asks, what if Oli... Saw Sterling Golden, a.k.a. Hulk Hogan, and thought, wow, if he only had a different gimmick, dot, dot,
1: dot. I think that Sterling Golden, even into Hulk Hogan, I mean, unless Ole had some sort of, uh, you know, genie in a bottle telling him that, uh, you know, gee, in four years, Hulk Hogan is going to be the biggest star in the world. He's just everything that Ole Anderson hated, and I don't think Ole, in, in a lot of ways. You know, like Vern, I don't think when, when, when Hogan went to Vern, I don't think that Vern ever thought Hogan was going to become that big, No, you know, and, and I think it would have been only stumbling upon, you know, it's, you know, the old Costanza line from Seinfeld. Do you realize it's like stumbling upon plutonium? And, uh, you know, that's like what it would have been because it was everything that only was not about. And so if he had found Sterling Golden and turned him into, you know, what Hulk Hogan became. It would have been by accident. I really think that.
0: Yeah, I have spent all week saying that I'm not going to sit here all day and and punch downward on Oli because, you know, I I know he has fans and I do it a lot. I mean, Oli brought Sterling Golden in in 1979. He was there for six weeks and then Oli decided that, no, I have no use for this guy. And to me, that's crazy. They pushed him hard on TV for like six or seven weeks and just by the size of the guy, I mean, you can tell there there are things you can do with him, like feud him with Tony Atlas. I don't know. I mean, feud him with Tommy Rich. There's got to be something you can do with a guy with that look. And instead of and if Oli really didn't see anything in him, just send him home after the first TV
1: taping. But don't- well, you, you know, what's crazy is that considering the fact that Oli didn't see anything in the guy. Mm-hmm. and really did let's just say, didn't believe in the guy, okay, or his future. You know, I can recall, like, in uh, the intro to the show at, like, 79 or 80, like, Hogan being part of their intro package, you know, yes. where, you, where you see the guy throwing the dropkick or a guy doing a body slam or something like that. You know, Hogan was part of that intro package, and it's really weird for a guy that was only there six weeks. The other thing that's kind of crazy is that Vern, when he brings Hogan up to the AWA, decide decided to package him With Johnny Valiant as his manager. (laughs) We talked about that. Yeah, yeah, it didn't seem like it would work.
0: We talked about that two or three weeks ago when Brad Breitsman was on the show. And yeah, what a a weird pairing that was. As far as I know, Johnny had never managed before. I had seen him in Florida earlier that year as a wrestler. So it really, I mean, I I know Johnny Valiant had a uh, history in the AWA, but the whole thing looked, looked bizarre coming in. Yeah, it's yeah, it it didn't work, that's for sure. And when I say that, I mean when as I was reading about it in the magazines, like Johnny Valiant is is Hulk Hogan's new manager. And no, obviously that didn't last very long. David Ferguson, would like some recommendations of things to seek out for someone who has never watched the territory. Jeff, what's your answer to this?
1: Well, it's a two part. First of all, uh if you do the old rabbit hole on YouTube and type in uh Georgia Championship Wrestling, you're probably going to get a good five years worth of uh, of television episodes. Uh, as far as seeing matches from the arena, they really, if they taped them, they only showed clips. They never showed entire matches. But as John and I were talking before we started recording, there are matches that are available. Uh, not a lot of them. There's a few matches that are available that were taped uh, in Col- Was it Columbus, John? We said Columbus. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's like, a match that uh, on uh, my fine podcast, Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry, we actually reviewed a match with uh, the Mass Superstar and Super Destroyer, who, by the way, John, I know you remember, were a great tag team.
0: They were a great yeah. tag team.
1: Yeah, and I think they were wrestling uh, maybe Tommy Rich and Mr. Wrestling 2. You know, so that match is out there. Uh, there's a match, I think, with Austin Idol versus Tommy Rich. There's different stuff out there, but, uh, you know, you kind of have to search for it. A lot of times, if you'll... You know, just as an example, if you type in uh, Austin Idol matches or something like that, it'll take you and you sit there and start scrolling down. You go through a nice little rabbit hole and you'll go through all the Southeast stuff and all the the Memphis stuff, and then eventually you'll get to stuff maybe from Atlanta. And again, it's just really because you know Atlanta was well known as a territory that taped over a lot of their stuff. They didn't save anything. Thank you, Oli, because he was the one that was doing it. But yeah, and oh, and of course. The very first thing that uh, you should find, uh, uh, what do you call uh, the last battle of Atlanta is out there now, but I think you got to go on the WWE channel or or network to get that. But no, the first thing you want to see, John, tell me if you agree with me on this, is go and find Oli's turn on Dusty in 1980. Oh, you know what? If there's
0: one angle that really stood out, it's probably probably that one. That was all
1: time. That's the gold standard, not only for the effectiveness of the angle, the promos uh, leading up to them showing the angle and then the angle or the promotion, the, the promos after they did the angles, not only from Oli but from dusty to very powerful stuff, really uh, good stuff. And uh, I think I told you this, you know, uh, they did that angle when the WFIA was up in Atlanta having yeah. their convention and uh, Barry Rose uh, was there with our friend Pete Letterberg uh, and a couple other guys. And Barry says that, as they're doing the intros, I think, to the match, you know, all the guys are in the ring. Pete turns to Barry and says, wouldn't it be funny if Oli turned on Dusty? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, he called it, man. You know, Give him credit where it's due. So, yeah, no, definitely that is something to look out for first. You want to find that Oli and Dusty angle because that is the gold standard.
0: All right. And that that is a good point. And, you know, I thought about this question. Um, and the funny thing about Georgia, aside from that angle, like, there isn't that one match from the Georgia territory that I got to see live from October 81 until black Saturday. And then the, the early morning show went away in like uh, April, 1985. There really isn't that one match that I can point at and say, Hey, look for this match. But what you want to do is try to find like old episodes of Georgia championship wrestling, because Like, they had squash matches, but the squash matches were good. The guys would actually fight back. It wasn't like the WWF, where if you were a jobber wrestling a heel, you were not getting in one lick of offense, period, and pronto. If, you know, Martell and Guerrilla or whoever were wrestling, yeah, they'd have a decent match. But the Georgia matches were always consistently better, and the, like I said, even the heels would sell a little bit for the jobbers. Another specific you might want to look for when Roddy Piper and Gordon Soli were doing the show together, Piper was a heel, no questions asked, but he was subtle enough to the point where you'd be like, okay, this guy's job is to do commentary. He's, he's supposed to be a straight man with Gordon, but he can't help himself getting in his snide little comments.
1: Okay. I'm going to tell you something that I think will be a controversial take. I liked Roddy Piper in Georgia more than I liked Roddy Piper in the WWF.
0: Oh, how could you not?
1: And he, he was amazing because we had never seen anybody like this. Because what, what he would do, he wasn't like over-the-top heelish. He would sit there and say, oh, uh, Brad Armstrong with a uh, a beautiful dropkick there, Gordon. A uh, Very effective maneuver. Of course, it's not quite as good as the one I throw. But anyway, it was very well done by that young man. He would do those kind of things where he, he would like praise them, but then say, he's not quite as good as me. And it kept up and kept up. And then you had the whole program with Bob Armstrong, you know, with, uh, you know, they're just verbal, you know, sparring back and forth. And then, of course, Tommy Rich and, and Piper and and Piper, I, I don't think was even full time in the territory. I think he just showed up for the TV tapings and maybe would do the Omni shows because he was still working mid-Atlantic at the time. Yep. He was working a little bit between both territories. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, it was and like you said, Piper would be like, oh, that was a great move by Brad Armstrong. Now. Here's how I might have done it a little bit more different, a little, little more effectively. He's <laughs> just yeah, like, dude, exactly. shut up. Exactly. But it was yeah. great. Yeah. All right, Brandon Hefner. Oh, we talked about, oh, we didn't talk about this. Do you think the Atlanta City Auditorium show Vince did with Gordon Soly in 1976 will ever see the light of day? And would HBO own it or would Vince be on it? I've always been fascinated by this. Vince mentioned it on the MSG telecast. They originally said, They'd be bringing us telecast from several venues around the United States. Jeff, what do you think?
1: Well, here's the thing. If it's owned by the WWE, it would not shock me to eventually uh, have it come out because, yeah. you know, the last battle of Atlanta or whatever with, with buzz and Tommy, everyone thought that match was lost in history. And then lo and behold, a couple of years ago, hell the WWE has it and release it. Okay. So if it's owned by HBO, I don't, think it'll ever see the light of day because quite frankly, I don't think people are are calling up HBO and saying, Hey, you got to release this show from, you know, uh, 40, uh, 44 years ago, because I'm dying to see it. There's no stampede at the, at the gates of HBO, the way there was people, you know, people would see different people in the way. Hey, do you know, whatever happened to this George, you know, they're more likely to ask a wrestling company if yeah. they have this than they are, you know, seeking out through HBO and, and, and asking HBO if they have this this card that they taped at the uh, in, in Atlanta 44 years ago. No, I, I agree with you. I mean,
0: it's possible it might exist. I, I'll say this. If WWE, they need to start releasing the older stuff that they have because the people I can who, tell you when
1: I, I think that's going to happen. I don't mean to interrupt you. Oh, sure. Think, no good. I, I think it's going to happen when Vince dies. I think okay. for whatever reason, Vince, th- there's things that Vince doesn't want to put out there, and then I think uh, Paul has a sense of wrestling history because I'm sure at some point he was obviously a fan, and you know I, I'm sure that Paul probably goes through the you know the archives and sits there and you know that fanboy in him that's in all of us sits yeah. there and goes, holy crap, look what I got here. This is something you know, and then maybe he'll go to Vince and Vince will be like, no, no, I, I don't want to release that, and you know, but but maybe it's in the back of Paul's mind. And Vince, you know, drops dead one day as eventually will happen. And then, you know, maybe Paul sit there and think, okay, what is it I've been holding back that I always wanted to release, but Vince never wanted me to. Oh yeah. There's that, uh, that one thing that I thought was so crazy good when I was a young kid and I was a fan and now is as good a time as any to put it on the network. That, I mean, that's the kind of scenario I can see happening.
0: That, that's actually a really good point. And you know, I'm not trying to be morbid or anything, you know, when Vince dies, but it's got to happen at some point. And you're right. Vince, seems sometimes to be a little bit embarrassed by, you know, the way the, the business
1: was before he took it over and turned it into what he turned it into. And you know, what's crazy is, and I, I've said this on, on our podcast more than once, I don't know about you. And I'll be interested to see what your opinion of this is. Cause you grew up a WWF fan. I loved Vince as a broadcaster. I, I'm not a huge fan of Vince as a promoter in a lot of ways. I mean, although he has completely changed the industry, in some cases, good things, and in a lot of cases, bad things. But as a broadcaster, the over-the-top Vents doing the Madison Square Garden cards, oh, my God, I love Vince. You know, like, you know, one, two, title change, no! You know, that, <laughs> and, 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 you know, I recently had a chance. We talked about it, and I went and, and posted in our group, uh, please tell me you've seen uh, the New Year's Eve uh, appearance on David Letterman, where they're at the hospital waiting to see who's going to ha- give the first uh, birth to the first baby in New York City. And and Vince is in one hospital, and Bob Costas is in the other one. Have you seen this? I have not. I'm, oh I'm, I'm unaware God of it. You, you have to. I'll, I'll try to find the link because it's it's awesome. And Vince is calling it like he's calling a horse race, you know. And the lady that ends up and, and Vince's hospital ends up winning, okay. But the the lady and I want to say her it was like a Latin name, like Rodriguez or Martinez, something like that. And he says Mrs. Martinez has kicked it into overdrive, and she's trying to have that baby, you know, right at the stroke of midnight and Le- and Letterman is just mortified okay and he's just like he's looking at the camera with that blank stare you know when he's kind of embarrassed by something that that Letterman could do and it is one of the funniest things you'll ever see and if we find it I'll send it to you and you can post it in your group cuz well, wow it really you. needs to be seen yeah
0: all right yeah i mean what I was going to say was i mean WWE you know they need to get that older stuff out because yeah. the people who grew up appreciating it uh like you and i i mean we're graying you know and we're not going to be around forever and the people who will appreciate this you know you need to release it when the people who will appreciate it will like it i worked with this girl maybe 12 13 years ago um and she was a big fan like i I see her desk she's got like matt and jeff hardy action figures i'm like hey you're a wrestling fan yeah you know as we start chatting and i you know tell her about uh w it was then wwe 24 7 and she's like oh yeah i get that and I started talking to her about, oh, have you seen like the, you know, the old world championship wrestlings from 85 and, you know, they dropped one of these like once a month and I recommended them to her. And then she comes back a few days later. She's like, yeah, I watched that and no offense, but it sucked. I was like, what? And she's like, you know, it was just the, the, it was all. Whatever word she used for squash matches. She's like, yeah, it's this guy who's a big star against a guy who looks like he's works at a gas station Monday through Friday, and it's one-sided. She wasn't wasn't that far off, by the way. No, she wasn't. And then you have a guy come out and talk, and then you'd have another one of those matches. And it's what we grew up with. It's what we like, but I don't think it's what the previous several generations are going to like. We're the ones that are are going to appreciate it. So please put it out.
1: You're right. And, and I mean, as an example, you know, my kids were never into wrestling, but people that are my kids age, you know, late twenties and, and, you know, and my son, oh my God, my son's getting ready to be uh, 31. It's hard to believe. And, uh, you know, but, but even people their age, they have no interest in seeing, you know, WWF stuff from the seventies the or even in the early eighties, if they want to see anything, it's going to be stuff that like, you know, when they were, uh, you know, kids or in high school or something like that. Which is in the 2000s, so oh, that's so sad for me to say. But uh, you know, so you're right. The people that are interested in seeing this stuff are graying and getting older, and you know, there's no time like the present to get that stuff out. You know, while while the people are still around.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, and I get it. I mean, she grew up watching Raw and SmackDown, and it's, you know, this nonstop uh, machine gun of action and you know angles. You know, we'd have we'd have two or three angles a year. They, they have more angles in one episode of Raw than we had in, like, all of 1976. So I get it. But, like, we're the ones who are going to like this.
1: Yeah. Well, it's just like, you know, you, you posted the other day in your group about uh, the, the card that you went to. What had uh, the executioners and singles matches. And you said, oh, my God, this was everything I'd ever wanted to see. My first gun. And I I said to you, I said, if you don't mind me asking, what makes this card so good? And and you explained. Why, you know, because this, you know, you had just started becoming a wrestling fan, so it was extremely hot, you know, to you. Cause I was looking at the card going, eh, you know, it's not really, you know, <laughs> and no, I get mean, that. You post cards a lot of times that also as a someone who grew up watching championship wrestling for Florida, and I'll go, Wow, poor John, he grew up watching some horrible <laughs> wrestling. But then you'll post cards and I'll sit there and go, Okay, that's got three or four really matches that are compelling that, you know, were were like a blow-off or a feud or a world title match or something like that. I mean, I I can appreciate watching a backlum match against a good opponent or a, you know or a Bruno match that's like a blow off match in you know in the, in the garden trilogy or something like that but to me while their main events were really good the top to bottom stuff you know the uh the stuff that was you know Pete Sanchez versus Johnny Roz, and I think you said I was all you know all hot and bothered to to see that because it was my first live card whereas you know trust we we'd watch you know, Pete Sanchez and Johnny Rods go to a twenty minute Broadway. We'd be going, "Oh my God, when when can we get to Danny Hodge versus Hero Matsuda?" You know, so oh well, couple of things. Number one, Pete Sanchez versus
0: Johnny Rods. It, if I were that age, I'd be like, okay, I'd be all excited because to me, I'd be watching a sporting event where, sure. you know, it's almost like, okay, this is a coin a, a, a <laughs> coin toss. My God, who's going to win you this match? <laughs> So you know, I. I would have been into it. And secondly, and this is important, Jeff, uh, and and I get, I've always got that the WWF, it sucked compared to Florida, Georgia, Mid-Atlantic, et cetera. I started buying magazines in 1976 and just looking at this stuff and being like, this looks way better than what's going on in the WWF. And then in 1980, I finally started getting regularly getting Florida championship wrestling on cable. And I was just like, I knew it. I knew this was gonna be way better than the WWF and it
1: is. Well, I don't know that the uh see, Florida, one of the things that was so key to people in my general age group, you know, give or take five years either way, is that when you watched it, it was like you were watching a sporting event. You know, yes. you might as well have been watching Jim McKay call wide world of sports for God's sakes. I don't know that Vince and, and again, I love Vince as a broadcaster calling the matches. But he was so over the top that a lot of times he, he'd do the thing where he'd like look at the camera when the heel made some sort of remark. You know, uh, he'd do this sort of like smart ass look at the at the yeah. camera, you know, almost like breaking that third wall. And, uh, you know, I appreciated both of them. But if you're watching that and then, you know, you said you see the Florida and you're all of a sudden like, oh, my God, I knew it. I knew it. It's because we were watching something that at least in our minds was completely different than what you were watching. Yeah. I mean, I knew that the Florida wrestling was not a legitimate sport, but it was presented as such. Exactly. That's what it was. And that's exactly the way Eddie Graham told Gordon to present it. Yeah. He said, I want you to present this as if you're watching a shoot, you know, and uh, that's exactly the way Gordon called it. And that's why we loved it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, and I absolutely loved it. I mean, it was on, on, it was on Sunday morning and then again on Sunday night on this cable channel. I don't even know what the hell it was, but I mean, I would watch the show twice. I loved it.
1: Yeah. Great uh, stuff, right.
0: to be sure. John English asks, what do you think the promotion's best year was in the Superstation era and why?
1: Well, in retrospect, I would say 79 was a great year with Heenan and, and Georgia. That was oh, really yeah. good stuff. Uh, and then... I don't know if it was necessarily '80 because you know, like like I said, there were problems with besides the Freebirds and, and Dibiase in that group. But like a year or so later, when you were having uh, guys like uh, oh, like Stan Hansen and Ole, when they won the World Tag Team Championship or you know the the Mythical Tournament, and they had those guys there. That '82 I thought was a pretty strong year, but you know, like I said, when they hit the skids, they hit it hard you know, I was talking about wrestlers careers, like, you know, Valentine, when he fell off the shelf, when Georgia, in my mind, when Georgia started falling off the cliff, it was a pretty rapid descent.
0: It really was. My personal favorite year was 1982. I didn't even get the full year of 81, but I got 82, 83, and then the demise in 84. I loved 1982. I mean, I absolutely lived for Georgia championship wrestling. You had the Roddy Piper and uh, Gordon Soley part of it. The Freebirds got back together. They had this three-way feud with Stan Hansen and Ole Anderson on one side and the Samoans on the other side. Was that Austin
1: Idol and Kevin Sullivan also? Were they there?
0: Yep, that was early 1982 as well. You got it. Yeah. Uh, You got the Freebirds getting back together, which was phenomenal. And then they had this feud that they tried to put together with Jerry Lawler coming in to challenge Roddy Piper. Yeah. And that fell apart when Piper got fired. But you had the whole Morocco and Piper dynamic. And you're right, Jeff. Like, I want to say, at the end of the winter in 1983, I was watching Georgia Championship Wrestling and saying, what the hell is going on here? You know, we went from Paul Orndorff and the Freebirds and, you know, Stan Hansen, Dusty Rhodes, Dick Murdoch, Ivan Koloff. Butch Reed, and now the big stars are guys like Larry Zabisco, Killer Brooks, and Pez Whatley. And I knew, compared to the guys I just listed, they were not big stars.
1: Yeah, no, you, you can always tell when uh, when times are changing. You know, it was funny you were you were talking about Morocco there. Uh, one of the things that was great the the gentleman that asked about stuff to search out for the the Piper turn with Morocco and Gordon that was so well done. One of the things that just I love really subtle stuff that that a lot of times flies over people's heads but maybe certain people will get it you know whether it's in a movie or a tv show or uh, or, or in this case when they did this angle where they turned piper is when morocco first comes out to the podium and he's kind of badgering gordon about how gordon never gave him credit uh, he always, always get piper credit you never gave me credit for anything and he says you never gave me credit for being the first man ever to reverse the figure four or leg lock and to a florida fan that's how they first pushed Morocco. Yeah. Like, I want to say like 74 was he was the first guy to ever reverse the figure four on Jack Briscoe. So when you're a Florida fan and you hear a reference to something that happened like seven or eight years before, you are just like, yes, I understand what he meant by that.
0: Oh, I mean, they did it over a period of weeks where where Morocco would come out and be more and more abusive towards Gordon Soli. And like you said, it's subtle. Like Piper would just kind of give him a look like, what are you doing, man? I mean, we were friends, but what are you doing? And then finally when Morocco was just, and he looked out of control, it looked like a shoot. Yeah. Like Morocco, would be like, you know, you He's always, like you spinning always getting
1: and, and, you know, all that kind of stuff like Morocco would do when you get really animated.
0: Yeah. And then Morocco started roughing slowly up and we're all like, whoa, you know, I was watching this like five or six people. And all of a sudden, you know, he pushes Piper and Piper and Morocco got into it. And you want to talk about just a living room of kids going crazy.
1: Cause I did not see that coming. Yeah. And then of course they, they extended it out because during the pull apart, apparently, you know, Oli was one of the guys trying to pull him apart. And he came out like, Oh, oh I, I want you to apologize. Yes. Shoved me when I was attempting to break up. Yeah. And that led into the whole thing with, with Piper and Anderson. And, uh, you know, and then of course, uh, it was funny because Tommy Richard started calling Oli Anderson pigface, and Rodney. Uh, they would call him Rodney Piper. And then they'd say they call him Rodney the rabbit because he was always running. So then then uh, Rodney Piper started calling Oli pigface too. And uh, <laughs> and Oli would just lose his mind. That was yeah, it was great times.
0: It really was. And you're right. I've forgotten about. Oh, you know, it starts. In, hey, I just want an apology, man. And Piper's just not doing it. And Oli's <laughs> like, no, you, you know, I insist upon this. And pretty soon they're getting into it. Yeah. All right. And let me see. Keith Byersdorf, we got Georgia's championship wrestling in Seattle. I thought you were going to say
1: Keith Keith Byers. I was like, the ex-football player? That's pretty cool. (laughs) It would be cool.
0: Ohio State's Keith Byer right into us. Uh, Let me see. The voice of Gordon Sully is immortalized, but I was not around during Georgia's heyday when they were firing all cylinders. When did it start going downhill, and was there a certain reason? I kind of think we've, we've touched on this yeah.
1: already. It was when, when Barnett was exposed as uh, overspending, that is sort of the tipping point as to when they'd reached their crest uh, and started uh, the downward slide because they didn't, they didn't have the money to pay some of the guy, you know, all those guys you just listed in 82. That's when they, you know, the next year is when they started bringing in guys like Brett Wayne Sawyer, uh, Joe Lightfoot, uh, Larry Zabisco, killer. And, Larry, Larry had been out of, Pretty much the spotlight for like a good two years, if not. Yes. A little bit more, you know?
0: No, Larry was on a milk carton. He left the WWF like the beginning of 1981, and he was wrestling part time for uh, Kowalski's promotion, which we talked about a little bit uh, a couple of weeks ago, where they had Larry Zabisco and Bruno San Martino Jr. do a show in Nashua. And it was the first time I ever had a front row seat to wrestling because they were front row seats less left, left over. They couldn't even fill the front row.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Larry couldn't get back to the WWF on that bridge. He burned.
0: <laughs> I've always wondered what the real story behind that was because Larry says, Oh, I, you know, I complained about my Shea, Shea, stadium payoff and they wouldn't bring me back or they fired me, whatever. And it's like, look, he was with the promotion for another six months. He was getting title matches, in Philadelphia against Backlund after the Shea Stadium shows. But then again, they didn't bring him back. So I always wondered what happened. Yeah. All right. And let me see. Final question. And this is a really good question to end the show on. But I'm actually going to end the show with a surprise. Give me a minute. But the question is from Jim Birchfield. Talk about a Mount Rushmore of Georgia Championship Wrestling. I love this question. Jeff, what's your answer?
1: Well, Love or Hate Him always got to be on there. I would say they're kind of intertwined. Uh, Jim Barnett really belongs on there, too, because he was so important through his connections and helping the promotion grow and, and go basically national. The other two, I think you got to you got to put Tommy Rich on there because he was so important to the uh, the group's success for a long time. Who would that last guy be? Um, hmm, I don't know. I'll say maybe Mr. Wrestling, Two. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, you know what? I'm going to change my vote just because they were the group that got me there. I'll say the Freebirds as a group, because they they were very integral. You know, the first time they got there as heels, and when they came back, and they ended up uh, doing like you said, they did the. Uh, and by the way, the the whole thing with Gordy and Hayes and Southeast, where on Atlanta TV. They showed their match from from Dothan in the cage you remember that john i do i remember yeah. the, the video quality was barely watchable. Yeah. They, they showed him and then the sheepherders wanted to come in and shave michael hayes's head and uh, uh let, let me see who else uh who else was on? the man joel duke joel duke was involved in that and it was because of that that's the reason why hayes and gordy ended up getting back together because gordy would not let the sheepherders shave michael hayes's head yeah great and stuff you know
0: what someone asked um
1: what should i look for on youtube Michael Hayes did
0: a baby face turn in 1981 and he yes. might have done the best promo of all time. He looked like one of Charlie's angels doing it, yes. but it was a phenomenal interview. Check it out. Uh, it, it just goes to show how great Michael Hayes was at one
1: point. I'm going to tell you a line that to this day I use and, you know, 40 years later, uh, almost. And that is in that promo when he's talking about his little brother. Yep. And his little brother and that, uh, he wanted to, he wanted his little brother to go out and win the the district title or something in little league or something. And he looks at Gordon and he says, Gordon, the children need direction. <laughs> and, and Gordon just like right there goes, and you're the man to provide it to him. Oh, that's right. You know? Oh my God. Yeah. That's such a great promo. Absolutely. <laughs>
0: Where Michael Hayes is feeling just about right at a party and he gives life, al- gets yeah. life altering advice from a guy named Frumpy. I'm not making this up. It's uh, my, on my the guy, promo. My
1: guy Frumpy. Yeah, he told me he's a good old boy, for <laughs> He's a little long hair. <laughs> you forgot where you came from, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> It was all so great. I remember watching it live and it blew my mind. See, I've completely forgot that promo, John. (laughs) You forgot where you came from. I think advice from frumpy is definitely going
0: to be the title of this show. My Mount Rushmore to me, number one, and he's number one by a long, long way is Gordon solely. I mean, there's, there's a big gap for me between number one and number two. Let me see. Number two and number three are very close. When I think Georgia Championship Wrestling and their biggest stars when I was watching it and following it in the magazines, Mr. Wrestling Two and Tommy Rich are practically tied. And then to me, there's kind of a gap between three and four. And four is Oli, because Oli, you know, he was the announcer. He was a a big star both a baby face and a heel. And there's a big gap between four and probably number five. And I know I've only got four faces on this Mount Rushmore. I was, I was going to say, are there more faces on Mount Rushmore than I remember? I'm, I'm just saying like, there's a, to me, there's a big gap between Ole Anderson and mass superstar. Like those are by far the top four guys. No. And, and
1: as I mentioned earlier, mass superstar and super destroyer, what a great tag team that time has forgotten. Yes. Uh, they were tremendous though.
0: I mean, they, you know, they had such great heel factions in Georgia and they, I want to say they came and went, but they kept them fresh. Like you had super destroyer mass superstar and big John stud all running around together and it, it worked.
1: Yeah. And then of course, you know, you had, you would bring in everyone. So while Gary Hart would come in with Kabuki and, yeah, and oh, yeah. you, you know, it was disappointing. You, you said you liked the, the, the program with the Samoans against somebody you mentioned earlier, but I hated as a manager, I hated Sonny King. Really? the, lo- the Lollipop. I was not a fan. Now he just did, you know, it's just, he didn't do it for me. You know I mean? Uh, I'm sure other people might say, Oh, I can't believe you like this guy. And that's fair because wrestling is all subjective. I, you know, I totally get that. Some people might think Sonny King is greater things than sliced bread. And I know he, he, uh, former WWF tag team champion with Jay Strombo has before but, my uh, time, but yes, yes. And, uh, but I just didn't like him with the lollipop and the Samoans. I didn't see them. Uh, you know, working together. So it's, it's like, you know, in the WWF, you, when you had your uh, your triangle of, uh, of managers there, you always knew the, the kind of guy that Albano was going to get, the kind of guy the Wizard was going to get, and the kind of guy that Blassie was going to get. Blassie always got the, like, the the foreign invader, you know? Yep. Albano would get the tag teams, and then the big ticket single star, you know, the Billy Grahams, those kind of guys, that's who the Wizard got.
0: I mean, you you sound like a conversation we would have in, like, 1981 where it's like, look, here's how it goes. Albano gets the tag teams, Blassie gets the foreign menaces, and Wizard gets the guys who are good. Yeah. All right. Jeff, I want to thank you for taking the time to be on. I personally recommend the show Breaking Kayfabe. I enjoy it. Thank you for providing that for us.
1: Well, you're you're welcome, because quite frankly, uh, you know we do provide it for you. And I would like to uh, mention, as we uh, have done a couple times, John... I had cancer and never missed an episode. Chemotherapy and all.
0: uh, You know, I got to tell you, Jeff, and I am, you are cancer free, and I am so happy. I was legitimately worried for you because I was like, You were
1: worried. Oh,
0: yeah, right. (laughs) Well, I was. I was like, You know, you had just retired, you had just relocated to Georgia. For years, you were talking about getting the hell out of Florida. You were sick of everything, sick of the weather. Yeah, we're sick, sick of the, the hurricanes.
1: We move up here, and we get a tropical storm a couple of days ago that breezes through my uh, where I live. Uh, yeah, I, I thought we had escaped that shit.
0: Yeah, but I, I mean, I'm just like, you know, if, if he retires and finally moves and then gets cancer and dies, that's just not fair. And that didn't happen, so that's good.
1: Yeah, no, I, uh, I had a lady that I worked with, uh, at the courthouse that had, uh, uh, you know, it was like 30 years was when you get to where you can think about retiring, you know, with the state and she had something like 29 years in or something like that. And one morning they, uh, she didn't come to work and they went over there and they found her dead. And I'm like, man, that is just a kick in the nuts, man. You're, you're one year away from, from getting your retirement, being able to enjoy your life and you just, you know, uh, yeah. Not something you want to think about, and uh, you're, you're absolutely right. It was something that went through my mind, too. So. A, a bit of a cruel joke that you avoided.
0: I'm, I'm really glad that happened. Yes. But anyway, we're going to go off on a, a happier note. I want to thank uh, our producer, Lou Kippelman, for all the, the sweet. Great man. Was, the
1: sweet lightning. Lou oh, Kippelman. sweet. Lightning is bad. Sweet Lou or the chef Lou Kippelman. The chef Lou Kippelman. <laughs> you don't
0: know. But you, no one probably knows about this. We're recording and Lou, this is like two weeks ago. I hear Lou cooking something in his kitchen. I'm like, Lou, we can hear you, Lou, (laughs) Lou, we can hear you. I'm pretty sure they got cut out of the show. We were getting getting...
1: ready to start recording our show. And of course, Lou is the producer on our show and Lou popped up a beverage, you know, with the old pop top. And Barry goes, Lou, are, are you having a beer there while you're producing? And it was like a Coke Zero or something. But, of <laughs> course, we said, we're going to tell everybody it's a beer just because it sounds better.
0: It, it definitely <laughs> does sound better than me sitting here drinking Diet Coke the whole time. Thank you, Lou, for all the great work you do. Uh, this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. But before we go, Austin Idol's name came up, Jeff. And I'm going to leave by doing an impersonation of Austin Idol's dog. Are you ready? Oh, please, God. Bow wow, darling. So long from the Granite State.
1: This concludes our podcast day.